Uh, tonight I'd like to speak about the personal and the impersonal. I think it's a fair question in the middle of the retreat to assess what we've been doing and uh, to look at sort of how we've been uh, moving on this retreat and uh, to sort of sum up where we are at this point. And uh, I think one way of doing that is to look at the um, dichotomy of the personal and the impersonal. Uh, I don't think I need to dwell too much on the personal. Uh, most of us know that very intimately. It's, uh, but for those of you who might have forgotten in the five days, um, it's very much seeing everything in terms of I, me, and mine. And the strategies of life are one in which uh, chiefly it's acquisition and gain, trying to bring things through um, uh, through our uh, accumulation into the sphere of our empowerment by grasping and holding on to. And, and then the other side of life is one of aversion and fear in which we try to keep out anything that seems to threaten that I, me, and mine. And so there's a kind of battle and rub that goes on which at some point creates enough of a friction so hopefully there's a fire that ignites us and we wonder if this is all that life has to be. And perhaps one of our deepest fears is, is that we are afraid that it is. That there's really nothing meaningful in life at all except this. And so it's with a little bit of a panic, I think, that many of us get involved in a spiritual search, uh, sort of the last grasp, uh, the last... Uh, attempt to make life uh, meaningful on our own terms. And then we come to Dharma practice, which is really uh, the understanding of life free of the I, me, and my. It is the um, sort of the neutrality of life, where it's not possessed and owned, but it has its own Mechanics, which is what we study when we sit down and look at things. And the retreat is an opportunity and an encouragement to move from that sense of possessiveness and defensiveness that we have about who we are to that lighter side in which we see things in a different way, with a different perception, free of that tag three of that identifying tag that we place on everything. And uh, we often, a few years ago, um, I went to see a Japanese Zen art exhibit. And um, it was very much depicted in terms of um, huge mountains and little teeny human beings and sort of the wisps of the brush strokes, you know, to fill in the wholeness of the human shape are just wisps of brush. And then I happened to venture us um, on the floor below the art exhibit of the Japanese Zen masters, and there was Western art there, and it was very different 
composition to the paintings and a very different sense of the fullness of, of the human form represented in that picture. And I think it very much is the equation that we look at when we get involved in spirituality. We go from the fullness of who we think we are to the wisp of what in nature we really are. Now, um, I'd like to um, back up just a moment and bring us back to that analogy that I mentioned on my first talk, which was approaching a one-way mirror. And you can begin to see now, and I think that talk was on the first night, where the room was cluttered and we were fumbling and stumbling over all the obstacles in the room and clunking our heads. And, but we finally got to the mirror, most of us in the room, and uh, that's when the interviews become very important <laughs> because what we see is that reflection and often there is a reaction of disgust to that, to that re- first initial reflection. It's not even the first initial reflection. The disgust, disgust goes on for some time and is actually an initial phase or stage of practice and it's said that uh, the truth will free you but first it will make you miserable. And it's very much that sense of, oh my God, I can't believe how selfish I am. I can't believe how much fear there's in me. That can go on a long time. So it's, the, it's seeing something in a different kind of way and personalizing it. Right? Instead of just seeing it, and just letting it be for what it is, we, because the only thing we know how to do is to reach out and grasp. The only thing we know how to do is to paint our name on it. Even if it's a corpse, it gets a, a, a big toe tag. <laughs> so we, we constantly are reaching out for that. Death is just happens to be something I, I use a lot in my... <laughs> As my, uh, my, my 14-year-old niece says, is, uh, Uncle Rod's using the D word again. <laughs> so we don't really know how, not, how to put it down, how to put down the, the grasping, how to put down the sense of personalization. And even though the context of the retreat in silence and the um, interviews and the instructions and everything are geared towards seeing things objectively. Check just what they are. Not toned and colored by our impressions, but just what they are. Just what's there in front of our eyes. Still we can't, we don't seem to be able to put down our grasping, our aversion, because we have lived with these things for so long, they seem so imbued in our system that we're not convinced they aren't us. So let me give you a freeing insight. It is impossible to be both the subject and the object at the same time. In other words, if you can see something, feel it, be aware of it, It's impossible to be it. 
in that same moment. How can you be? You can't be it and see it. To see something, it has to be outside of you. And what we've been doing is taking apart our mind in detail and looking at it. And systematically through the nine days that we will have been here together, we will have taken apart virtually every facet of the mind. And some of you have caught glimpses of your emotions and your physical sensations and pain and sound and sight and thought and actually been able to hear thought as an object of sound, listen to thought. If this hasn't happened to you with uh, perseverance, it will. And you, suddenly it dawns on you that these things can't possibly be you. How can it be? But it takes a lot of time. It takes um, repetition. And we sit down, we go, oh boy, this again, this again. But there's something that's happening in this again. It's not this again, more boredom. It's this again that is imparting a relationship, imparting an understanding, imparting a wisdom. And to be willing to go through in this again, and this again, and this again, ad nauseum, eventually, it's like having a, a huge chain, and every time you see it, you're wrapping it with a sledgehammer. Now, it takes a lot of chunks with a sledgehammer to break that chain, but every time you're seeing it, you're hitting that thing, and it doesn't seem like it's, it's weakening the chain, and all of a sudden, it falls away. And that falling away is experienced as an insight. When the chain suddenly falls away, it suddenly something is revealed differently than the way we've hooked up to it prior to that. And one sort of the key component, I believe, in this personalization, impersonalization continuum that we walk in spirituality is the understanding of thought that Sharda spoke about last night and that is at the heart of the Buddhist teaching because it's thought that makes the world what it is. It's thought that makes things full and separate. It makes us believe in the word and the meaning of where it is pointing. And so as we begin to become aware of thought, we notice that it has content, which is our personal representation, our history through that meaning. It's where we get drawn in through that word, longevity-wise. The word tree, you have a history with trees your whole life. So you get drawn through that word, and you, you become... You become... <laughs> through that word. And as we begin to actually be able to listen to thought, not as something that we're doing, but as something that is occurring, then there is a releasing, a gradual releasing from time itself. Because what is the past except 
the continuation of thoughts about something that has occurred. And what is the future except thoughts about something that has yet to occur and is anticipated? So when we see thought as just something that's happening in the now, in the nowness of the mind, there comes a freeing component to that, where we're not being dragged through the history. And for some people, there's a real letting go of our history. Now, we can get very enthusiastic about this. We feel very light. There's no question that the impersonalization process has a lightness. It allows us to feel happier. We don't carry the kind of burdens of the past or the remorse and the guilt. We don't carry the anticipation of worry. Uh, around so much. It just uh, begins to get lighter. But there can still be a kind of grasping that goes on at this point because it's not fully understood that we're not these things and we like the sense of being somebody that's lighter. (laughs) So we'll go into our meditation instructor and we'll say, I saw no self today. Saw the thought, not around. I know now, no self. <laughs> and we may, because we feel the high of that experience, go out and try to convince people of this. Proselytize. And <laughs> I read this... Uh, Read this, and he says, uh, When he was old, I tried to introduce my father to the Buddhist doctrine of emptiness. I thought it would ease any anxiety he had about uh, the imminence of death. So I said, uh, Dad, ultimately, you never were. <laughs> and his father replies, Uh, Maybe not, but I made a hell of a splash where I should have been. (laughs) But But the whole sense of depersonalizing the mind is an extremely important and central issue of the Dharma. Central, absolutely central to the Dharma. And may I just say, as an aside, my teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa, used to say, any teaching with no self is good teaching. Conversely, any spiritual teaching with self is not. And let us remember that because we will be drawn in and allured, because we want to be somebody. We just don't want to be who we are, most of us. And if we can be promised a bigger or a nicer or a gentler or a more allowing or a kinder or something, that's where we'll go. We'll try to bleed this selfness for all it's worth. 
But there's something in you now, even at this point. And it really doesn't matter if you're an absolute beginner. You see, the moment you sit down, if the meditation is framed in the correct way, immediately you begin to understand anatta. And I'll explain how that may be. You sit down and you start watching your breath. And your mind gets caught up and you get lost in thought. Now the instructions are very simple. Pay attention to your breath. But you can't do that. If you were in control of your mind, which prior to meditation quite likely you thought you were, you immediately see that you are not the controller of your mind almost within the first five minutes of sitting. How can that be? If you were there with the mechanisms and the hands on the control, simply put your attention on your breath. And I'll check back in 45 minutes. <laughs> Something's going on. And that continues to enrich and deepen all along the way. The cells of your body begin to change into that understanding. So a life we can so trying to go back to a life that's meaningful in terms of content there's a a point when it's not completely satisfying anymore although it takes a long time to come to that point. Most of us will find when we leave the retreat that we fit very easily back into our old lives because the patterns and the force of conditioning is so strong that the context of what this retreat shown us compared to what the momentum of conditioning has been in the past to believe the content is so large that we can seem to quickly forget. And it, it just seems to go. And we just, we don't know what that week was about, really. Although we feel a little bit quieter, maybe, or a little bit this or a little bit that, still, the chain of self is still very much in link and formed. Now, it's very interesting because oftentimes as we approach that one-way mirror, there's so much disgust that what we really want to do is get out of our skin. And so we think of the self as being something that we're trying to get out of, trying to avoid, trying to get rid of, trying to push out of our mind. The problem is it's the very basis of the mind's working itself, and therefore to push against the mind is only to push against the sense of self and the resilience of that, and it comes springing back. It's very nicely shown in this Kubir uh, Kubir poem. Friend, please tell me what I can do about this world I hold to and keep spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe, but I noticed one day the cloth was well woven. So I bought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I discover that I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice that I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. (laughs) When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. We We can't do anything about it. The self manifests. 
manifests. It's a, it's a mechanism of mind. It's a perception. It's a way of perceiving the world through this sense of grasping. And, and that's not the point of the meditation anyway. And I think this is a very important point, is that the self is to be understood. The ways of the self are to be understood. It's not to be destroyed. It's not to be thrown out. It's not to be avoided. It's not to be rejected. It has its use. You have to get home. You have to have a knowledge base in order to do that. You have to go to work. You have to be functional in the world. To have something functional to do requires a sense of knowledge and knowing about what you're doing, which will require a sense of self. It's not a problem until we make it a problem or until we believe it to be something that it's not. And so now we're working to depersonalize the mind. And that can be a very seductive trap for most of us because what we have seen as we have approached this one-way mirror is that sense of disgust and we would like nothing else than to be nobody. But we want to be nobody. We don't want to be nobody, if you know what I mean. And yet there is a lot of things in our consciousness, in our psychology, most of us, that are still uncooked, that are still reactive, that are still unexplored, that are still uh, full of um, our conditioned reactions. And yet at the same time we're seeing the mind from a vantage point of depersonalization, from, a, uh, from an object, from from an impersonal way, and yet these patterns continue to operate. Very quickly, they intrude on this whole thing. Now, it's possible at this point, and at this point meaning even years into the practice, to so want to be in the impersonal that we start ignoring those reactivities. They become blind spots. We just don't pay attention to them because we know that everything is empty. We know that everything ultimately, because we have seen it, and our neurosis does not stop the insight, but it stops the integration of the insight. And so we see. We see. And therefore we're convinced. Our mind hardens and grasps around what we see. We know there's no self. We know things are empty. And yet percolating under the, that attention, under that awareness, is the reactivity. And it's operating through our actions in blind ways. And we've taken up a resting place in the impermanence, in the impersonal, because it's safer. I don't have to face the pain of reactivity as long as I can hold up there. I don't want to face that pain. I don't want to have to go back to therapy. I'll hang out. I'll hang out in the impersonal. It's nicer. This is not a gross movement. It is extraordinarily subtle. So though you laugh, be aware that these traps remain for most of us. And how do you know where those traps are? By your reactions. Those are the areas of, the se- of us in which the, we may plead the impersonal, but the personal is still very much there. Very much, we're held on, 
And in fact, when you start exploring those areas of reactivity, you have to go through the pain that those reactions indicate. The anger, the upsetness, the whatever, fear. And the way they come out, the memories associated with them, is with the understanding in which they were engendered, not with the impersonal understanding. And so we have to be willing to go down to the base level and experience those memories from whence they came and how they came and how they were engendered. And nobody wants to do that now that we've traveled this ladder of enlightenment up to the rungs of emptiness. Hang out in the clouds. I don't want my feet on the ground. It's dirty down there and it hurts. And yet we're called to be on the ground. This pose of the Buddha behind me, his right hand is touching the earth. And on the, that happened on the night of his enlightenment. He touched the ground and felt the pain of what was unresolved. Everything has to be trans, trans, transparent. And so as we approach this one-way mirror, we may be able to see partially through the reflections, but part of those reflections are still coming back at us. We can see through, if we look very closely, we can see that it's transparent, but there's still some reflections that are coming back and hitting us. We see that the mind that holds on and grasps becomes someone. And we begin to learn an awful lot about the mind. But are we willing to go to where the hurt still is? Are we willing to acknowledge the hurt? And you know what it takes? It takes willingness to hear feedback. It takes every single trick in the book. You look out for how other people are reacting to you. You don't get closed off and travel through life with blinders. I know everything's impersonal. I don't have to. You look out. You want everything to give you feedback. You want life itself to give you feedback. To see how it's going. Where am I? Where's the blind spot? Blind spot, by definition, is not being seen. If we have blinders on, we are hiding from the very blind spots themselves. So, through the use of other people, through the use of community and sangha, we have the tap on our shoulder. Rodney, have you seen? And you go, God. Because all of a sudden it's very jarring. You spend 25 years and you're called on something. You go, geez. You feel like back to kindergarten and it is that kind of innocence is needed we need to go back to kindergarten feel the pain of that because we can gloss over it so easily we just move through life glossing and whole teachers can have their teaching styles and you can hear the blind spots And they don't see them, but you know them. So be careful of taking subtle postures in relationship to those, away from those blind spots. Those blind spots are called for attention, for the completion of the process of the the alchemy, of the evolution, 
of the personal and the impersonal. So it's not that we jolt away from the impersonal, from the personal to the impersonal. It's not that we got to get out of this. As a matter of fact, something very interesting happens as we begin to see the process of mind more impersonally, is that the person, personal, the sense of self, becomes shorn up. It becomes firmer. It becomes more, less neurotic is another way of saying it. Because as we get less tied to time, less tied to the, to the neurotic reactions, less bringing less of the past to bear upon the present, the sense of self gets, is able to handle more and more. You know who I am. I know right who I am. I know where I'm going. I know what's going happening. Clarity becomes greater. You see, it's not like we lose the sense of self and that we don't know who we are and we're sort of walking into walls. But we've, it's shored up. It's exactly what we're trying to achieve in therapy in other ways. We just can't be afraid of being a self. We just assume that sometimes. But it doesn't fool us. And this neediness that we might have blocks that integration of insight because we won't let insight in to that reactivity. We're too afraid of the hurt. This is a a total sum game. It's not part of myself and part of I will. You know, I'll have 90% in the impersonal and 10% in the per. It's a total sum game. The entire mind needs to be translucent. The entire mind. And because we may have seen the emptiness of mind doesn't mean that it can't refill itself again and again very quickly. And it will. If there is any part of us that has not been adequately understood, that part waits for an opening. It'll bide its time. When the conditions are right, it comes forth. And the impersonal, meanwhile, is shunning any reference to the personal. It's not wanting to claim any ownership. And there's a subtle up-leveling that can occur that is really aversion. This reaction that's going on in me, it's not really who I am. This is no self. Immediately we cover the reaction with no self. It's no self. self. There's nothing to worry about. It's just no self. And I say it in a funny way, but believe me, it catches us. It's not, it's there. And the more sophisticated we become with the terms, the more easily it slips forth. And so it ultimately means taking responsibility for our pain. Yes, I hurt. I don't understand that. I'm prejudiced. I'm this. I'm that. Owning that. Not pretending we're not prejudiced because we're spiritual and 25 years of me, I don't have any I don't have any prejudice. You own it. And you use it as a way to inquire and investigate and to look so that the evolution can continue to move that personal reaction to an impersonal process. 
But we don't seek out of the personal so that we can... We don't seek the impersonal out of the personal. We, in looking, instilling ourselves and watching the personal, it transfers, it transcends itself into the impersonal. We don't have to do something. We just have to understand. And the understanding itself is the impersonal. You see, that's what we're doing. When we sit still, we create less of an inward movement. We're focusing on one object, our breath, or one thing. And so we're not moving with it so much. We're not in fear of it as much as that. Our anger comes up, our impatience, and usually we're so afraid of it, defining who we are, we're in movement of it, and we just want anything but that. So we're out of there. And what we mean by being out of there is that we act from it. And as we begin more and more to be able to hold and accommodate and allow those things, we're not moving as much. And in the not moving as much, we're not trying to create or see that thing as being impersonal, but it is perceived as impersonal because the movement itself creates the sense of self it being mine. And when we're not moving, we don't see it as being mine. It's not mine anymore. And until we are, unless we're willing to hold it, we're not able to see it as anything but mine. So in our willingness just to hold something, the evolution of, from the personal to the impersonal is occurring. It's not something we have to force. It's just something that we have to see. And you... Become, and we become very sensitive to those areas of ourselves who are still tender, where we're still tender, and where we still need protection. Because believe me, as you journey on this spiritual path, more and more projection will come your way. And if you are dependent upon projection for your sense of selfness, you don't want to go back and show yourself to be vulnerable to the lesser personal world. And if there's a history of you, of me, in which having a particular role, a particular authority is important, then I'm going to be even more reluctant to look at that pain. Because the pain makes me equal to you. And I can't rise above that equality as long as I'm in pain. Do you see that? So we've explored this issue. And you know where the whole thing comes, where it all comes, where the change falls down, is in humanness. Just being a human being. Just being a human being. get to that, some more of that in a moment, but let me talk a little bit about how the moving, the coming together of the impersonal and the personal and the impersonal, where neither is sided with or against. Uh, Joseph uses an analogy that I'll steal from him, in which he says, "There's see yourself as being in a movie theater, and if it's a really involved movie, and you're a very good movie, you're, you're totally involved in the movie. 
and yet at the same time you know that there's a movie running. And this doesn't pull you back so that you're not involved in the movie any longer, but there is a sense of reference for you that allows you to also know that you're in the audience. And this is a coming together of the personal and the impersonal. Now, I'm going to take it a step further because I have a problem with ending with that analogy. Because even the perception of the personal from the impersonal or vice versa is a slight backing away. Oh, that's personal, that's impersonal. I'm there, I'm there. It can be a, it can be a little referencing going on. It's like when you're in the middle of a painful emotion and you say to yourself, oh, Nietzsche, 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 I've got to remember that this is going to pass away. It's a referencing that you go on that we put in, in context to the situation to remind us that it's going to ch- change, which reminds us that it's not so bad, it'll be over soon, which is a kind of aversion response, Right? So the referencing actually is a subtle moving. And there can't be any movement if it's all going to be whole. If it's going to be total, if it's going to be whole, I can't reference. Which means what? As we begin to practice more and more, time begins to narrow. I don't know a lot of experienced meditators that spend a great deal of time daydreaming throughout the day of things that are past and just kind of losing, losing our way in that. And as you practice, we practice more and more, we spend less time dwelling upon the past or future expectations. It just happens almost automatically in the process of meditation. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen as frequently. Less papancha as Sharda was mentioning last night. Just not, it just doesn't have any relevance. It's not that we've had to put it aside or let it go. It just doesn't come because it just doesn't have any relevance to anything. It's seen for what it is, just thought. So what one can say is that as time begins to play less and less on one's life, there's less of a sense of personhood that we're bringing from day to day. And it's almost unnoticed. As a matter of fact, the Buddha used the analogy of a woodcutter. And he said, after 30 years using the same axe, cutting down trees every day, the woodcutter looks at his axe handle and sees that it's been worn away. But he can't say that he wore away this much yesterday or this much last year. He just realizes that the wood has been worn away. And this practice has a long, persistent, prolonged process of just that. It takes perseverance. But even though the time is narrowing as we go into this thing a little more, still there's reactivity that comes up for most of us. We still find ourselves in reactive patterns. The past playing itself in the immediacy of the present moment through our our reactions. And at that point, as good meditators, we may 
reference this moment. Oh, this is not self. This is not who I am. This is just, let me, let me look at this thing and see this thing as an object and catch my anger and hold my anger. And, and it's all this kind of wavering. And there's coexistence going on. The impersonal and the personal are coexisting at that point. And there's a lot of wrangling going on between the two. And coexistence is not non-existence. Wherever there is two, trouble will brew. <laughs> if you want to make a note of that, you can... <laughs> to not reference one from the other means that we are content in both perceptions. It's just, it's just, it's just the way it is. It's just this. When we do so, without referencing, we're a full human being and we're not limited by our humanness. No, the perceptions don't limit us. Because the non-referencing brings both the personal and personal together simultaneously. It's the Dalai Lama who sits down and before he speaks, he scratches his head and says, boy, I'm confused today. My God. No problem with it. No problem whatsoever with the confusion. No problem with whatever it is that runs through our systems. What emotion arises, what feelings, what sensations occur. Because the whole thing is spacious and the non-referencing and the non-movement towards the one in respect to the other. I don't seek the personal or the impersonal. I don't, I'm not afraid of the pain of the personal, so I have to follow or move myself into the impersonal. Those things come together, right? It's not as if we have to manage this thing. We don't have to be in control any longer because... That's what we're trying to do when we configure our minds to perceive from this direction or from that direction. It all comes together in just who we are without embellishment or denying any aspect of it. Just this. Just now. Just being human. And human beings are always equal. Human beings are always vulnerable. And human beings are always unlimited. Can we sit for a minute or two? One of the ways to work with this personal and impersonal is to see yourself not as a person having the experience of awareness, but awareness having the experience of a person.
get a sense of that a little bit. It's not to take refuge in equanimity, some abode away from being a human being. It's to feel the pain of being a human being. And in the understanding of that pain, that's where equanimity comes, that's where balance comes, that's where understanding comes, in the thick of that. Through understanding, we become equanimous. Equanimity is not a place where we go to be protected from pain. It's a willingness to hold pain itself. And the heart comes to play. As the self shrinks, the heart enlarges. As the self enlarges, the heart shrinks. And when both, when the self is understood, it shines. The heart shines simultaneously with the coming and going of self. This is what we're doing. May it be so for all of us. Thank you all. There's a walking period now.